Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. The fallout from the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade continues. In November, California voters will decide whether to enshrine a right to abortion in the state constitution. That after the state assembly voted yesterday to place the question on the November ballot. KQED politics reporter Guy Maserati has more. Democrats like Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks of Oakland argue abortion rights should be protected in California's constitution. We have to do everything in this state to say to the rest of the world that here in California, we are truly a reproductive freedom state for all. The problem with the measure, says Republican Assembly Leader James Gallagher, is that it puts no limits on abortions. The wording that says nothing about late term, it puts no restrictions on it. And so babies like my twins at 30 weeks, their lives could be taken. The measure would protect abortion rights in the state from future legislative change and potentially boost turnout among voters in the midterm election. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. The end of Roe v. Wade has turned the United States into one giant state-by-state jigsaw puzzle when it comes to abortion laws. Take California and our next-door neighbor, Arizona. While abortion in California will remain legal and the state says it will champion reproductive freedoms, Arizona is looking to enact some of the most draconian abortion laws in the country. What could this mean for both states? We reached out to veteran Arizona political reporter Howard Fisher to discuss. He started by telling telling us what's happening in his state post Roe v. Wade. Theoretically speaking, the Roe decision returned Arizona to its pre-1973 laws. And the pre-1973 laws say abortion is illegal except to save the life of the mother. In other words, there's no exception for rape, no exception for incest, no exception even for the mother's mental or physical health. So at that point, we're looking perhaps at allowing only a handful of abortions in Arizona versus approximately 13,000, which was the last full year which, for which we have data. Let's talk about the California dimension of this. State leaders here say they want California to be a reproductive rights sanctuary state, helping women get abortions if they can't get them in their own state. Do you see many people in Arizona taking advantage of that? Well, I think that's the ultimate escape valve, is that California has legal abortion. So does Nevada for folks living in Northwest Arizona. It still is a problem for people who don't have the ability to take off the time, who don't have the childcare, who don't have the transportation. You know, a lot of abortions here are, for lack of a better word, you know, mass transit abortions. You know, you take a bus to a clinic. And for women who do cross state lines to get an abortion and come to a place like California, 
or Nevada? Do you think there's an appetite among some Arizona legislators to stop that flow of people? Keeping in mind, of course, that we still have the freedom of interstate travel in the United States. I would tend to doubt that because remember, look at the parallel situations. Up until this year, Arizona did not have legal gambling. Nobody tried to tell folks, no, you can't go to Las Vegas and, and lose all your money. Even going beyond that, Nevada has legalized prostitution. I've never seen any prosecutor, no matter how zealous, saying, no, you've gone to Nevada to commit a, something that would be a crime in Arizona, and you can't do that. You have interstate commerce issues. As you point out, you have freedom to travel issues. And I don't see any way you could do that. I'm not even sure how you could enforce that. I mean, are you going to check women as they come back into the state and say, you know, we'd like to do a medical exam? I mean, that's just silly at this point. All right. That is Howard Fisher, a journalist with Cap Media Services in Arizona. Howard, thanks for joining us on the California Report. You're very welcome. California is set to become the first state in the country to provide full health coverage to all low-income residents, regardless of their immigration status. As KQED's immigration editor Tyke Hendricks reports, it's part of a state budget deal announced this week by the governor and state lawmakers. In recent years, California has extended Medi-Cal to children and the elderly who lack legal immigration status. Now, undocumented immigrants aged 26 to 49 will also be covered, starting in 2024. Advocates had hoped the coverage would start sooner, but they're still celebrating what they call a fair and inclusive approach to health care. Sara Dar is with the California Immigrant Policy Center. It shows the rest of the country that things like this can be done. We have the largest number of immigrants in the state, so if California can do it, any other state can certainly do it. Roughly 700,000 people are expected to sign up at a cost of about $2 billion a year. Dar says preventive care saves the state in the long run. The budget deal also extends food stamps to low-income adults over 55, regardless of immigration status. That's another first-in-the-nation move. For the California Report, I'm Tyke Hendricks. And here's more about the state's $300 billion budget deal. One item that was not included was an increase in wage replacement for workers who take time off for health reasons or to take care of an ill relative or bond with a new child. But as we hear from KQED's Farida Javala Romero, advocates say they're hopeful about further negotiations with Governor Newsom. State disability insurance and paid family leave benefits are paid for by the vast majority of workers in California. California. You can probably see that 1% tax on your pay stub. All right, so I'm sitting at home with my kids looking at my pay stub, and there's earned income, taxes. Oh, there it is, SDI tax. Our money goes into a collective fund, and then when we need to use disability insurance or paid family leave, the state uses that fund to pay most of us back 60% of our wages for a limited time. That's to make sure there's enough money for everyone who needs it. The problem is people who are already living paycheck to paycheck can't afford to take that big of a pay cut, but they're still taxed for the benefits wealthier workers are more likely to use, says Katie Woodchett, an attorney with Legal Aid at Work. We know that it's not humane or cost efficient to force back to work new parents, folks who are sick or injured, or their family caregivers before they're ready. 
But that's exactly what happened to Rosalba Contreras, an administrative assistant in San Bernardino County when she had her second baby. I wasn't able to take my full maternity leave. I wasn't able to, you know, take care of myself like I was supposed to or like I, um, the doctors wanted. Contreras took only half of the 16 weeks of leave she was eligible for after her C-section, she says. The state sent her less than $1,500 a month while on disability, but her medical bills alone were more than 1000 a month. I had to borrow money from my parents. I had to borrow money from family and friends. She says what pained her the most was that she spent a big chunk of her leave hospitalized because of complications from the C-section without seeing her baby. Then she was only able to take two weeks at home with her newborn before heading back to work. She cried a lot. And that was very hard. It was very, very traumatic. Um, I wish I would have been able to afford to stay home longer and bond with my baby because bonding with her for only two weeks was really nothing. Sometimes the consequences of not taking needed time off can be deadly, says Dr. Sharad Jain, a primary care doctor at Sacramento County Health Center. He remembers a Latino dad in his 50s who should have taken disability insurance to get a biopsy, a CAT scan, and treatment, but... He was worried that the rates were, were, were too low when he spoke with our social worker, and he said, I have to go to work because... If I don't make my full salary, I'm not going to be able to support my family. That patient ended up getting a lung cancer diagnosis too late, says Jane. And the man died prematurely, leaving his kids and family on their own. That's why the doctor supports a proposal by lawmakers to increase disability and paid family leave payments to 70 to 90 percent of people's wages, with the higher rate for lower-income workers making about $57,000 or less per year. I think that would do a huge amount to provide them with the freedom to make decisions that would optimize their health. And for me as a provider, I would love to see that happen because I think that would lead to a healthier community and ultimately lower costs for our system by earlier diagnosis and treatment. Governor Newsom vetoed a similar proposal to boost wage replacement last year, arguing it would cost too much. But this year, the governor's office has been offered a potential fix to raise more funds, getting rid of a cap that allows the highest income earners to stop paying SDI taxes on income beyond $146,000. So right now, people don't pay that SDI tax after they make $146,000. With the new proposal, they'd keep paying it throughout the year, no matter how much they make. Again, here's attorney Katie Woodchett with Legal Aid at Work. So, you know, requiring wealthy people to pay the same percentage as the lowest income workers seems pretty reasonable. Now it's up to Newsom to decide if he agrees. His office declined to comment on the proposal or the negotiations. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, 
please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. After passage in the state Senate, the state assembly has approved legislation allowing lawsuits over illegal guns, taking a page from a law in Texas aimed at stopping abortions. Governor Gavin Newsom modeled the bill after a similar measure was approved in Texas that allowed residents there to sue anyone who provides or assists with helping someone get an abortion. The California assembly approved the gun bill on Monday, sending it back to the Senate for a final vote. Senators already passed a version last month. The governor says he expects California lawmakers to send the bill to him as early as this week before they leave for a month-long summer recess. Gun rights groups and the ACLU both criticized the legislation for creating a so-called bounty to encourage people to bring civil actions to punish crimes. Affordable housing with easy access to public transportation is hard to come by in many places, especially for residents who need it most, like people dependent on public transit and the unhoused. In Los Angeles County, LA's Metro Board of Directors has voted to help remedy that problem by land banking or purchasing land before developers can buy it. That's supposed to help keep housing affordable near mass transit lines. KCRW's Jenea Williams explains. This year, construction started on 300 affordable housing units on Metro-owned land, adding to the 2,200 units already in the agency's portfolio. The goal is to double that to 5,000 affordable units by 2031 to help L.A. families reduce two big expenses, housing and transportation. To do that, Metro would buy land in advance along its planned rail lines and hold it in a land bank in order to keep it out of the hands of luxury developers. Targeted areas of interest include South L.A. along Slauson Avenue, the planned West Santa Ana branch light rail line between downtown L.A. and southeast L.A. County, and land along the L.A. River. For the California Report, I'm Jenea Williams in Los Angeles. L.A. County has allocated $50 million to start making purchases for the land bank with some restrictions. The agency is not able to buy land unless it's needed for a transit project, and even then, it can only make a purchase after passing an environmental review. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. And that is the California Report for today, Tuesday, June 28th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and talk tomorrow. Hi there. I'm Randa Fatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. 
That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 